I'll invite the rest of you now to take a Bible to open it to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to read the first 21 verses of this chapter. If you've been with us in Nehemiah, uh, the way I could, would have scripted it was that we would have been in chapter 8 last week because chapter 8 was just this whole celebration of the faithfulness of God and it seemed to line up to what we're celebrating today. And today's chapter is an entirely different tone than last week's, but I hope that you'll see that it all goes together because though the tone of Nehemiah chapter 9 is primarily repentance and confession, there's a willingness on the part of the people of God to be so public about their confession and their repentance because they recognize it as also a gift of God to be able to be honest and truthful about their struggles and to do so publicly. They think of it as a wonderful testament to God's grace. And there are different kinds of gifts that we get and some gifts that we get we do consume in a short period and then they're done but then there are other kinds of gifts that we get that when we get them they open up a whole bunch of other opportunities and we get more gifts because of them uh, I was uh, out of town just for a few days this past week and so when I got home uh, Joshua told me that he got a book in the mail which we are signed up for the imagination library which means from I think zero to five a book comes once a month to our home in our kids names and so I thought he was referring to one of the books from the Imagination Library, which usually is a fun time. It's great to receive it, and we open up the book, and we read it together. Sometimes it's a book we have have or heard of before, and sometimes it's totally new to us, but it's usually a once-a-month kind of a fun gift. But that's not the book that he was referring to. He said, Dad, we got a new book. And I said, what? He said, we got the Target Christmas catalog. <laughs> I said, oh, we did. Wow. I'd only been gone for two and a half days, but by the time now that I was home, this thing looks like an ancient manuscript. <laughs> it, it has been looked through so many times, the front cover is ripped off, and so many toys are circled, or different things are circled within it with an initial of who wants what in this whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is a gift that keeps on giving. Like, this book opens up worlds of imagination. Those of you who are Marvel fans and think Marvel's all complex and how big is the Marvel universe, there is no universe as big as the Target Christmas catalog universe. Everything you've seen is available for sale in there from every stage of life that your kid might be in, and it's all available to you. And we get birthday season in November followed by Christmas season, uh, so we, we kind of get hit hard here at the end of the year. But it was exciting to see that joy of, oh yeah, this is a different type of Gift. This makes a whole bunch of other ideas come to mind for him. The gift of grace is supposed to be like that in our lives. When we receive it, we don't just consume it and we're done. But we just see the amazing amount of other things that now can happen in our lives because we've been recipients of God's grace. Even things that beforehand we might not even have thought of as gifts, like confession. So Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month of the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua and Bani and Cadmiel and Shabina and Buni and Sherebiah and Bani and Chenini 
And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel and Bani and Hashbaniah and Sherebiah and Hodiah and Shabaniah and Paphahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the, the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of the cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And that's where we'll conclude our reading. There are these incredibly helpful summaries in the Bible of the whole story of the Bible. Uh, I haven't taken the time yet, but I want to mark down the chapters that do exist that summarize the whole book all the way up until that point. <laughs> Because if you ever were saying, I'd love to read the whole Bible in 10 chapters, there are actually 10 chapters within the Bible that would summarize the highlights of everything that happened. And this is one of them. At their critical point in history, now with the temple rebuilt and having celebrated feasts that they for generations had not been able to celebrate, there is this retelling from creation all the way up until their day. 
just for the sake of our attention span, we're breaking up it into two because they're trying to summarize a couple hundred years of their history. And so we'll look at the second half of their history up into this point next week. But what we see at the beginning is that this service has a very different feel than the week before. The week before, they've been told to not grieve and to not mourn, that this was a holy day and a time for rejoicing, a time to eat, drink, and be merry. And where our passage opens up today, it says that they were fasting, they were in sackcloth, and there was earth on their heads. So if you would have walked in, you would have said, what's going on today? Everyone, is, everyone seems sad. Everyone seems to be mourning. They're grieving something. And again, it's one of the ways now that this grace of God in their lives to bring them back and reestablish them as people has opened up to them this additional gift, the gift of grief. They are together, and they are now allowed to cry. They're allowed to weep. They're encouraged to. Instead of feasting and drinking, they're told to fast and to come together and cry. And we don't think of grief as a gift, and it isn't a gift if we constantly fight against us, fight against it, and never allow ourselves to really do it. But if we allow ourselves to grieve when the emotions bubble up and we think about unfulfilled promises and misplaced expectations, when we think about the regrets that we have of decisions that we've made or things that other people have done that have affected us or things that no matter how hard we try or pray are realities that we deal with that we'll simply not be able to ever change, if we allow ourselves to appropriately grieve those things and someone says it's okay to cry it's okay to scream it's okay to be upset it's okay to be afraid there is something physiological at the end of that that is relief (laughs) and if we don't allow ourselves to do it, we continue to bottle it up and there's no one that we can share those things with then it isn't a gift It, it affects our bodies in all kinds of negative ways But when we can stand publicly and be truthful about what really hurts, it is a tremendous gift that we could then receive. And there are certain conditions that we need in order to experience this, and one of them is the gift of God's grace, that because he's brought them back, because he's made clear to them that he loves them and that he cares about them, they now have this freedom to speak what is truthful in their hearts and to cry about all the things that hurt rather than trying to bottle up because you can't turn your emotions off. You can't turn your feelings off. And so if we never learn healthy ways to express them and process them, then they will affect us in negative ways and they will harm us. But if we allow them to do what they're intended to do and we take those moments to mention the loved ones that we wish were still with us that aren't, and how sad that makes us. And not just to mention it and move on, but to sit with it and to allow ourselves to feel it and to think about others' people's stories and the things that they have struggled with. When this really happens and we do this with other people, it has a way of uniting us to one another that nothing else in human experience does. And if you think about that, who is the person you could walk away today from service and just tell them everything you're thinking and feeling and sad about. 
whoever that is that could come to your mind would then probably be one of the people you're closest to on the planet. There's an intimacy involved to truth-telling. And when you feel like you've shared everything and someone has shared everything back, it has this way of, of saying to your own soul that you are known and that you are loved and that though that person can't necessarily do anything about it, there's just an immediate care and empathy that is received from another person when we do this. And this wasn't just one person crying. We have stories in the Bible where Hannah comes to the temple and she's grieving and she's praying and no one else is and they're like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? They assume that something's wrong with her. When no, many of them should have been grieving. It shouldn't have been only her. There was plenty of corruption going on in the church. She was grieving her own struggle, but grief in public worship should not be a rare thing such that when it happens, the only assumption is that something is wrong and needs to be changed. Here, all of the people together are participating in this expression of grief in how they're dressed, in what they're not eating, and then how they gather. It says they read the scripture for a whole quarter of a day, then for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped. And here we see with this gift of grief is the importance of confession. It's possible in crying it all the way through and believing that God has really forgiven us of these things to then say, well, so I don't have any need to confess this. Like, why would I, right? But that's not what they do. In their recognition of God's grace and their opportunity to grieve, they realize they still have to say it out loud. Someone else has to hear them say what they're grieving. And if they don't, again, they're withholding from themselves a gift that God intends to give them. Because just think of how uncomfortable it is for you to say it. <laughs> think of how tempted you are in your own mind as I am to say, I can't say that. There's no way I could say this. And that same feeling is, what if you could? What if you, what if you really could? No, it's just not possible. No, it, it could be possible. And maybe it's not appropriate with everyone. But if you could say it, you immediately cut off all of the opportunity of the enemy of your soul, the devil, to then continue to bring it up to you as an area of secrecy. If you, on your own, bring out into the light what he wants to have a field day with you in secret, you will know when you've crossed that line and said, you can't shame me this way anymore. You can't constantly make me afraid of what's going to happen to me if people know because I'm just going to tell people. That's the gift of confession. I was rereading because I was traveling. I always tried to take a book with me. And so I have a, a book that's it's an interesting book. It's a biography about a book. So it's a, a church historian writing about mere Christianity and not necessarily the contents of the book but how the whole thing came about and then since it was released in the 1940s all the way up until today, how it's been received by different generations. And then as it's been translated in over 30 languages, how different cultures and societies have read it. So it's a biography of a book. Probably doesn't sound interesting to you. <laughs> Super interesting to me. Anyways, it says that 
C.S. Lewis made an intentional choice while he was writing the Screwtape Letters, which became one of his most famous books. He made an intentional choice as an adult man of almost like 50 years old now, about to do the radio broadcasts for the entire nation on the BBC defending Christianity, to then commit himself to meeting with someone once a week to confess sin. And then he did that for the rest of his life. Someone that was on his calendar to meet with, to confess his sin, an Anglican priest. And he maintained that for the rest. And he made that decision before he became famous. But he maintained it even then when he became famous. And people were coming to him as the defender of the faith. And you say it better than anyone says it, and your books are selling in the millions. And he had a place that he would go every single week to say, I'm still just a human being. And here are all the ways I mess up. Here are all the dumb things I do. Here are the sinful ways my heart is still tempted. And so if that was a decision he could make in his mid-40s to early 50s, it was challenging to me to say, is there someone on a weekly basis that I confess my sins to? It's not how I thought about confession growing up. Confession was usually something you did at one point in your life. You did it, said everything, then you probably got baptized and joined a church, and then it wasn't necessarily expected as this ongoing reality. But part of that was a view of the Christian life that was a sense of not ongoing growth and maturity and development over time, but basically you're the best at the earliest and your goal is mostly just not to mess up afterwards. Um, where if our view of the Christian life is as coming to faith in Christ, we then all become newborns in Christ and there's development that happens. Well then of course in that development along the way we learn things by mistake and error and sin and growth and grace and forgiveness. Which if we read this chapter, it's exactly what happened for the people of Israel. God, you created all of us. You chose Abram, you made him Abraham, you set him in this land, you redeemed all the people. After all of that, they still built this cow to worship and said, this is what saved us and not you. And then you were still gracious to us. And while they were complaining about wishing they could go back to life in Egypt, the very food that they were eating and the water they were drinking in the wilderness was still provided by you. They didn't get saved at one point in time and then never have ongoing need for grace and mercy and confession and restitution and restoration. It was always their need and it's always our need, which is why we were called to worship today in the first song to sing together, Lord, I need you. Lord, I come, I confess. I need you. Why do we still sing that? Because that's true of every one of us. Whether we've been a Christian for a day or 50 years, we never outgrow our need of God and therefore we never outgrow the goodness in our lives to make confession of our sin. You might walk away and say, nope, I'm not doing it. And God is so good that he's gonna say, okay, I'm not gonna make you. <laughs> I've not yet made someone say something. But it's a gift and I'm willing to give it to you if you're open to receiving it. And I want you to know my grace enough to know that you can actually enjoy it. And that's where, as this ongoing confession brings us, is to this realization that he is the God of all grace. 
It was in his grace that he created the world. No one asked him to do it. He did it on his own. You are the Lord. You alone. You've made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with their hosts and the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. And then verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. He has all the grace we need to make things out of nothing. He has all the grace we need when life takes us from one country to another, from one set of expectations to a totally different experience. And then he has all the grace we need that when we have received nothing but blessing upon blessing and we scorn the blessing that he's given us. It says in verse 17, second half, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. This we could add our amen to this morning. He is a God of all grace for all of our needs, which is why we monthly celebrate the Lord's table together. We often think of it as remembering specifically the sacrifice of Christ for us, which is what it is all meant to represent. But in recognizing that sacrifice for us, we come forward recognizing that we are still in need. We still need his grace. And when we publicly celebrate this, we are publicly confessing that the only hope for the forgiveness and the cleansing of our sin is the God of all grace. When we come forward in celebration of communion, we are acknowledging to the world that we don't think we can fix it on our own. We don't think we're just smart enough to solve our problems. We don't think even putting all of us together that somehow we've attained some level of goodness or some level of perfection that that we have it all together. No, no, no. Because of his grace, we grieve our own sin and that it was so serious that someone had to die for us to be forgiven. That's how serious it was. Nothing but the death of Christ could cleanse us from it. And we acknowledge that when we celebrate it together. So I'm gonna pray, and then the praise team will come up and lead us in song as we confess together that we need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. that was abundant to us in creation, that you are the one who's given every one of us life and breath, that you have sustained us through all of life's experiences, through all of its broken promises, through all of its unmet and unfulfilled dreams and expectations. Our presence here is a testimony to your grace and your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you for that gift and help us to receive all the other gifts that your grace enables us to enjoy. Help us to grieve over our sin. Help us to confess publicly what Satan wants to remain in the dark. And help us to confess and worship you as the sufficient one to cover all of our sin.
we thank you that you are patient, that you are slow to anger and abounding in mercy. We thank you that your love is steadfast. In Jesus' name, amen.